Good morning. My name is Gord, and I'm a volunteer here. You may have noticed that I'm not Rob, but uh, that's because he's off for a few weeks, and he asked me to be one of the speakers who um, took care of the message when he was away. So I hope he's okay, and he's doing better, and uh, I hope I do okay today, too. Uh, he, before he left, Rob set up this series that we want, he wanted people to speak about, about the big words. So he assigned me a big word, which I agreed to do, and it's one of the big words that associated with our faith, and that is incarnation. 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 Whew. Incarnation. This is this is 2022. I, I I never even used the word incarnation as far as I can remember. I, it's not something that shows up in ordinary conversation. Who who uses that word? Like I imagine a word like that being used by a guy like this, or maybe a, a guy like this or talking to another guy like this, but not not me. This is me, and I don't talk like that. It's no. Incarnation, that's a, that's a word that's not part of my, uh, my vocabulary, really. I think I know what it means, but I don't know. Maybe none of us know what it means. I, I think I better look it up. According to Mr. Webster of Webster's Dictionary, um, the, that there's a number of definitions for incarnation. It, uh, one of them is uh, a concrete or actual form of a quality or concept, especially a person showing a trait or typical character to a marked degree. So, for example, I could say that Julian, who is standing here uh, filming this, this, uh, this message, is the very, very incarnation of excellence. But when, uh, when you capitalize incarnation... It changes the mean, the union of divinity with humanity in Jesus Christ. Hmm. I asked Professor Google what he had to say about it. Uh, And he says that, sure enough, it is from a Latin uh, source. Uh, It's derived from the late Latin word incarnari, which essentially means in the flesh. So, In a Christian sense, incarnation means God in the flesh. Well, at this point, Rob would probably have something profound to say about God in the flesh. But I'm not Rob. I'm no theologian. I I can't speak or read ancient Greek. Rob knows all that stuff. I'm just me. And I'm an ordinary guy. So all I can do is speak from what I believe and what I know from my my own personal life. So that's what I'm going to share with you today. I'm an architect. And, you know, as an architect, I love the process of design. I love the idea, the concept of of taking a really hazy notion or idea and developing it through a lot of steps right through 
to a physical reality that people can move around in, inhabit, touch. It becomes a real thing, all through an imagining of a, of a, of a building. You know, and, and, and to do a building, it, it, there's a, a lot of steps to that design process. It, it's a lot of convincing people of, of your idea before it is a reality. As an architect, I have to be able to, to um, demonstrate to planners at the city that my idea uh, works with their, their uh, objectives for the city and how it's to grow. I have to be able to convince the owner that this design meets his needs. I have to be able to persuade neighbors who may not like change very much that this change is for the better and will actually uh, improve things for themselves. And then I have to also be able to, to uh, tell the builder on how to build this building, how it's to go together. All of this happens through a combination of drawings and word pictures long before any building exists. That's how design works. It's, uh, it's amazing. Like when the, when the best architecture happens, it's about more than just shelter. It's about, uh, it, it, it's about being able to make, create, create community where people come together and, and meet and exciting things happen. There's, it creates joy. And when it's really successful, it stimulates, uh, ideas for what comes next other kinds of design changes that can happen, buildings that will happen nearby. Uh, and, and so when that kind of thing happens, I, it, it's really exciting. I've seen buildings, I've visited buildings where you can see what the, the project was about, but you can also, by just looking carefully, also see the plan that was behind the project. And so there is the design, and then there's the big idea. And I think that's, that's kind of what the, the Bible is all about, the big idea. The Bible tells a story from beginning to end, a bunch of stories, in fact, and that's, that's important. They're about a time and a place, about people, and that's all the, the it's like the design, the, the building itself. And then there's the big idea. The big idea, which is run through the whole Bible, threaded like a golden thread all the way through it, like in a tapestry. And the big idea is, I think, what, what incarnation is all about. But let's just see what the Bible says about this idea. So John, John has, I think, the best presentation about what this means. And we find it in the first chapter of John, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light. That light that shines for everyone was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of any natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. I love that chapter. <clears throat> That's one of my two favorite pieces of Scripture. It's, it's, it's just... Uh, a wonderful piece of poetry, really. Uh, it, it just try, it, it tells it all. In the beginning was the Word. You know, when you think about it, it's reflecting the, the very first lines of the, the book of Genesis. In the, the, the creation story, where God, the first thing that happens, it says, in the beginning. And then the first action is God starts the first action of creation, God says, he speaks, let there be light. So what John is saying here is that act of speaking, that is actually God. That is the, the main source, the power, the vehicle, if you will, if you will for creation itself. The creation is, is, happens, it occurs through speech. And that speech the Word is God, is the essence of God. So in the beginning was the Word. And that's a really neat concept. So, so he's been here all along. He's not, the story begins at the beginning. And then he says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And you know, I'm pretty sure that, you know, that the us stands for the whole of humanity. But on one level, I think John's just talking about him. He's talking about the little group of people. He, Peter, the other, the rest of the disciples and the 12, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He dwelt amongst them. He made his dwelling amongst them. They, 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 they spent all their time with For three years, this little group of people tramped with Jesus all through Galilee and Judea. They were there for everything. They were there. They saw him when, when he was healing the sick. They, they heard him when he made all of those great sermons and all those profound sayings. They, 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 
saw him when he was angry and they saw him when he was tired and they saw him when he was sad. They saw him when he was joyful or when he was hungry. They, they saw him every day for those three years. He made his dwelling amongst them. So John is talking about something really deeply personal here for him. And it's, you know, it's just a, a connection with God. No one has ever seen God. That's one of the things he says. Let's, let's just see what he said exactly again. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's, that's the point. That's the final statement of the, of the whole passage of this introductory poem, this poem which sums up the whole idea, the big idea about the incarnation, that God chooses to come in the, to live amongst us, to live amongst us, to be amongst us, to walk with us, to experience fatigue, hunger, anger, all the things that people experience, including suffering and death. And to demonstrate in the flesh that this is what it's all about. This is who God really is. This is how you are to live and you are to copy and, and, and reflect. I think the primary purpose of of Jesus' ministry, even though there's a feeding of the 5,000 and all these other people who we encounter in that story, is this little group who follow him through it all. They are the ones who are are committed to it. And what John is saying here is, this is the Son of God, and I know because I spent my time with him for three solid years, and I know with out a doubt that he is who I say he is, that he is God, that he is the Word. Let's go back to the creation story, to the very beginning in Genesis. You know, if you read that first two chapters, you'll see that, that God develops a relationship with Adam. They walk together in the cool of the day, and they, they talk. And God, they, God tells him, all of this is for you. Everything here. This is for you. But there's one thing you shouldn't do. The tree of knowledge of good and evil at the center of the garden, don't ever eat the fruit from that tree. Because if you eat that fruit, you will surely die. So the the question really is, is why did God create that tree? Why is it even there? He didn't need to make that tree. And then he makes a tree and he tells Adam, don't eat from it. Whatever you do, don't eat from that tree. And he's even given it a name, which is, you know, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So like, it sounds like it's got great benefit. You know, you know every parent knows that 
You can't leave a tray of cookies sitting on the coffee table in front of your little kids. You know, nice, fresh, warm cookies, just fresh out of the oven, chocolate chip. Now, don't you kids touch those cookies. I don't want you to have any of those cookies. That never has worked for any parent. At least it never worked for me and Karen. No, God put that tree there on purpose. It was part of the big idea. It was part of what he wanted to to do. He wanted the relationship to be by choice. So if we go on in that story, you know, Eve becomes part of, of the family. And then there's the story where one day she encounters the serpent. And that's interesting too, because the serpent, you know, I don't think the serpent's really a serpent. I think the serpent is the incarnation of evil. And so the serpent talks her in, tempts her, talks both of them into eating of the fruit, and then they, you know, now they know. They know they, they have the knowledge of good and evil. And when God finds out about it, he confronts them. He tells the serpent and tells them all that your seed, the seed of Adam and Eve, will crush your head and you, in turn, will strike his heel. Well, the he is Jesus. And this is centuries and centuries later. This story is like the first, the oldest part of the Bible. The Bible is, you know, was written over a span of more than a thousand years. And this part was handed down by oral tradition. And so it existed long before anybody uh, wrote it down, but before Moses wrote it down. So this is a signpost. It's the first signpost, I think. Rob may have another idea. You may see other signposts in this whole thing, but to me it's the first one that I notice. The signpost looking towards a future when the Word would come in the flesh to dwell amongst us. There's another story um, in, in Genesis about Abraham. And, you know, that's a... They, they, they're no longer in the Garden of Eden, and Abraham is, becomes a friend of God's. God chooses him out of thousands, maybe millions of people. And it's a time when people worship idols. <laughs> the child sacrifice is common. It's a, it's, a not a, it's a brutal kind of world. But he chooses one man to develop a relationship with him. And God doesn't have any, any uh, physical representation. He doesn't, there's no image that looks like him. But he walks with, that, with Abraham. Abraham is conscious of his presence throughout everything he does. And all he demands of Abraham is faithfulness. And he makes a promise to Abraham that if he is faithful to him and continues to follow him, he will make him the father of a great nation that will be a blessing to all people. That's pretty absurd, really, because Abraham by this time is an old man, and Sarah, his wife, is an elderly lady. They're long past what we would think of as childbearing age. And they actually laugh about it. They can't see how this could happen. But it does happen. They have a son. His name is Isaac. And Abraham loves this son. It's it's going to be, uh, he can see the promise coming about. And it's just great. It becomes the, 
it's the beginning of something wonderful, even though there's just this little group of people out in the middle of nowhere with their, their flocks. And then one day, God tells him somehow that he is to make a sacrifice. He is to take his son, the son he loves, Isaac, take him on a journey to a mountain called Moriah, and there build an altar and sacrifice his son. Now, Abraham doesn't want to do this, but he knows that he has to be faithful to God. And all he knows, and God has made him a promise that he will make a great nation, and that, that great nation will come out of his children, out of this line that Isaac is the beginning of. So all, you know, when asked by, by Isaac, what, where, where is the offering, Father? What are we going to do for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself will provide a lamb. So they get there. They make the altar. They pile of wood on this awful structure. It's like, it's, it's really gruesome. It's a, it's a challenging thought. And anybody who's a father would, would struggle with this. And he even binds up Isaac and puts him on it. I imagine him doing this, weeping all through the whole thing. And I don't know what Isaac's doing, but I can't imagine that he's really doing this willingly. And it's a horrible, horrible thing. And then at the very last moment, God stays his hand. And they discover a ram caught in a a thicket nearby. And God tells Abraham to sacrifice the lamb, the ram in the stead of Isaac. So what's the point of that story? Why make him go through that experience? It's really tough. It's another signpost. It's God telling us and everyone who reads that story, I know what it's like. You feel you need to make these sacrifices to make make me love you and to forgive you. I don't care about sacrifices. I care about faithfulness. But I'm going to do it because you believe it so much. I'm going to send my son, just as I have told you, shown you this this image here, made you go through this experience. I'm going to go through that experience. And it will be many years from now. And he will be the sacrifice to end sacrifices. That's the second signpost. There's lots more of those signposts. If you go through the Bible, Rob could probably direct you through to dozens of them. Or Ernie he knows them all. Ernie can find them easily. I love discovering them. And the thing that's so amazing about them is this is all written down hundreds of years earlier than the coming of Jesus by, by people who don't know about Jesus. And they... There are prophetic things. Sometimes there's prophecies that, that point towards what's to come. Sometimes they are events that reflect what is yet to come, but they all point to this. And it's the big idea that is woven through the Bible. God, the other thing I believe about is that God chose that people, chose, chooses Abraham and his descendants to be a repository of knowledge of who he is. That a people who he would communicate with and 
he would guide and they would have these scriptures. They would have these prophecies. They would have these historical events which would be able and which would be kept and would be a foundation for things to come, for the big idea. They go through a lot of bad stuff, those people. They aren't at all faithful or obedient, but there's always a remnant who is. They go through bad kings. They go through enslavement. They go through exile. They go through famine and pestilence. There's all kinds of bad stuff happens. But through it all, there's always this remnant that maintains it. So, when Jesus comes, all of this background exists. All of these scriptures exists, exist. All of these signposts exist. There is a sense that there's a Messiah to come that the people know about. But the other thing about this being the time is that never before has there been anything like the Roman Empire, which, which controls and expand, has expanded around the entire Mediterranean Sea is one entity. And the Romans being so organized have put in place a system of roads and shipping lines and communication. And Greek has become the language of the empire. So people have freedom of movement, a freedom to communicate with one another. Uh, and and it's, it's a time which is just perfect for the good news to be spread to the world. And much later, within a hundred years, the temple is destroyed. Most of Jerusalem is destroyed. The Jewish people are again carried off into slavery. So there's this window in time when Jesus appears, when the word becomes flesh, where it all works. It was really special. It's the perfect time. So what was the purpose of this incarnation? What was the purpose again? I think that all of that, what had happened before, the understanding that people had of who God was and what his message was to them, was a little bit like the perspective one has of looking up at the sky through a well, from the bottom of a well. And so when Jesus comes, as, the, as God in the flesh, the incarnation. He broadens that perspective. He takes, takes us out of that well. And now we see him in, in action, in the flesh, moving about us, just as John says. My second favorite passage in the Bible is the last chapter of John. Really, I really love John. But in the last chapter of John, it's just after the crucifixion and the, and the resurrection. And the disciples have, have seen the risen Christ twice already. But for Peter, it's not the same. Obviously, it's different. He had spent three years following Jesus, being his right-hand man. Jesus had called him Peter, which means rock. And, and he had adopted that. I really believe that Peter saw himself 
as the rock on which Jesus depended to get things done. And Peter had failed. We know from the few chapters before this last chapter, when at the Last Supper, uh, Peter just is adamantly um, confirming that no matter where Jesus goes, he will follow. He'll be with him. You don't have to go without me. I'll be there. I'm, I, I will even, I'm willing to die for you, Lord. I can go with you. And Jesus turning to him and saying, really? Really, Peter? You're willing to do that? And peers right into his soul and says, before the cock crows tomorrow morning, you, Peter, will deny that you even know me three times. And sure enough, that does happen. Peter's seduced for various reasons, compromised just to be close to Jesus. Uh, Maybe he can be of help, but he fails. And what starts is just as a, a, a denial that he knows Jesus just to, you know, to, no, 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 you have me mistaken with somebody else, goes to the point by the third time that he's like vehemently denying, I don't know this guy, I don't know him. And then Jesus dies. And when, G, when, when Peter realizes what he's done, and the scripture says he goes out into the night, and we don't hear about him again through the rest of the crucifixion story until the resurrection. But I think that Peter, in all of those stories about the resurrection, Peter is not a central figure. I think he's backed off. I think he's he's really happy that Jesus is back, but it's not going to be the same. And so, in this last chapter, Peter doesn't know what to do with himself, and he says to the others, I'm going fishing. Because that's what Peter did before Jesus came along. He was a fisherman. Maybe it's the grief. Maybe it's the guilt. I don't know. Or maybe it's just, I don't know what to do with myself. So Peter and the rest of them go out and they fish. And they fish at night. They fish all night. And there's something about physical labor when you're grieving or you're hurt or you're you're frustrated. It's a way of just clearing the mind. You just make yourself busy. And so he's busy doing physical labor, throwing a net, hauling it in, throwing a net and hauling it in, and they work all night, rowing the boat. And then at dawn, the early morning, there's a figure on the beach. They're close to shore. It's a man standing there next to a little fire. And he calls out to them, friends, have you got any fish? And they respond, they're tired. No, no, we, we, we don't have any fish. We've, we fished all night, haven't caught a single, single fish. And he responds and says, well, why don't you try fishing on the other side of the boat? It's absurd. And I don't even know why they do it, but they do. For some reason, maybe... It's the suggestion, why not? Maybe if they're so tired, they don't have any reason to resist. Maybe it's one or two of them start the process and everybody else falls suit. But they do it. They toss the nets over and immediately the net is teeming with fish. And it's, it's so heavy and, and, and full that they can't even get it into the boat. And John, who's sitting behind Peter, whispers to him, it's the Lord. 
And I can imagine Peter suddenly shifting, still holding onto the net and looking at the figure on the, sheet, on the beach through the mist. Only for a second. And then recognition hits him. And he grabs his cloak and he hurries, hurls himself over the side of the boat. They're close to shore. It's chest deep water. He's surging through this water. The undertow of the waves pulling back out into the lake are sucking him away, but he still works against that water and pulls himself towards the beach. He tries to call out at some point and water comes into his mouth and he's gagging on it and he pulls himself through the tugging of the water. His feet get stuck in the sucking mud as he's getting close to the shore, but he finally pulls himself of the water to the figure standing by the fire. And he rushes up to him and they embrace and it is his Lord, it is his friend, it is his master. And there is this reunion. And all the others come forward. They bring the boat up on the beach. He's got bread and a few fish and they pull the net in and they get they go through the, the, the huge collection of fish that they've caught and they pull out the best ones and they clean them and they prepare them and they cook them on the open fire and it's, it's just like old times. It's just the basics of their relationship. There's no Jerusalem. There's no big crowds. There's no Pharisees or scribes or, or teachers of the law bugging them. There's nobody begging to be healed. There's just this group of friends back at the basics, back on the beach, by a fire like they did for so long, a morning together. And they eat, and you can imagine there's laughter and there's talking and there's, they're eating till they're satisfied and, they're, and it's after they finish, there's the kind of afterglow of a, of a good meal. And I imagine... Peter is just bent down to tend the fire. And Jesus speaks from behind him. And he says, Simon, Peter looks up, do you love me more than these? He gestures to the the boat, the nets, the beach, the the fishermen, the crowd, the, the group of them that's there together. Do you love me more than these? Peter smiles and says, looks around and says, Lord, you know that I care for you. And, and Jesus says, feed my lambs. Peter turns again, but almost instantly Jesus asks a second time, slightly different. This time he says, Simon, do you love me? Before it was more than these. Now it is just, do you love me? And Simon looks around and everybody's really quiet. Nobody's saying anything. They're just all looking at him. And Jesus' eyes are just bearing down on him. And he says, Lord, you know that I care for you. Jesus nods and says, tend my sheep. And almost immediately he says, Simon, do you care for me? And by now, Peter has, he's not stupid. He recognizes the repetition of three times, the three denials. Jesus knows what he's done. And he's crushed. 
He's broken. He knows that he's failed, that he is not the rock. He is just this guy. And he responds, Lord, you know all things. You know me. You know before I even answer how I feel. Yes, you know that I care for you. And Jesus' face breaks into compassion, softens. And he says, feed my sheep. And the two of them talk for a bit. The passage goes on where Jesus tells him about what's going to happen in his ministry and what he's going to do. But the part that strikes me most is almost at the very end is where Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And he does. And I, I don't know if that means what I think it means, but I think it means follow me in the way that I've done all through this. Not just follow me down here where we go and talk. It means follow me. Follow my life as I have lived it. Be like me. Be like me. Be like the incarnation. Be like God in the flesh. He lived with them. He lived for them. He lived for us to follow him. That's what incarnation means. That he's real. That it really made a difference. And we know that Peter did do that. That he did follow him. And he becomes this 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 powerhouse of witness that changes the world and carries that message forward because he'd been there and seen it and he was forgiven. When he discovers that the rock he's called to be is not because of its great strength, it's because he's like all of the pieces that will be this church, poor quality rock that will make it a mountain of strength through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for the big idea, for the idea of incarnation, of the Word becoming flesh, of God becoming flesh, of you making your dwelling amongst us. And all we have to do is look and believe and accept. Guide us forward. Help us to be conscious all the time of your presence with us. And help us to be the people you have called us to be, to reflect you, to be your body on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.